Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Heart of Sports with Jason Springer and Jeff Cohen, powered by ELEC 825. We're thrilled to join you on WWDV 860 AM and the 97.5 Network, ready to help you move into the weekend, talking about all the news in the world of sports. Jeff, I know you stayed up late for that football game last night. It was a barn burner. <laughs> you really want me to, like, I, I don't know why I even have to respond anymore. Like, I'm thinking the first couple minutes of the show should just be you asking the question and then playing back my response or responding for me. Cause the answer is no, I didn't watch it. And why would I watch that trick? Yeah. Uh, the Jets and the Broncos. Some, I, I, I would say somebody had to win, but based on the Eagles game, apparently somebody doesn't have to win. No, you can tie. <laughs> you can tie. <laughs> that is possible. Uh, I did watch the game, of course, because it's football. Uh, well, you say but, you can tie, but I can tell you that the Sixers are not signing Ty Lue. No, they're not. We're going to mm. have Keith Pompey on in a minute, uh, talk about all the news that went down. Uh, new Sixers head coach Doc Rivers to be named, Jeff. Uh, surprise, surprise. <laughs> that was not even an option a week ago when we were on the it air. Is, it is amazing how something that disorganized could turn out working out so well. They yeah. literally, but by, by their, they, there's no way they could have known this was going to happen. And yet somehow they just fell in it by, there is no question in my mind that they were about to hire Dan Tony. That was my look. Until Doc was, Rivers you made available. me take a stand on trading Joel Embiid last week under the premise that Mike D'Antoni was the guy, and I just didn't think the the, the pieces fit together. Uh-huh. And, and now I don't have to take that stand on this week's show because it doesn't sound like we're talking about that anymore right now. It doesn't. Who knows? Sound- Maybe. No, they're not. No, they're not. This is this is this is the last ditch effort. If this doesn't work, it's never going to work. Okay, so what are your thoughts on this? Yes, they lucked into this, but how do you feel about the move? Is he the right guy? Who? Is Rivers? Rivers the right guy. Of of the people that are available? Yes, of course he's the right guy. Okay, so now how do you think it all fits together in terms of this team? I, there's no more excuses. They can't blame Brett Brown anymore. Um are we going to finally see some accountability and responsibility uh, for what goes on with this team? Or are we going to, do you think that things are going to kind of stay the same the way they were? I think this is going to be a whole shakeup. I think that this is going to be a really interesting move. I think doc rivers is going to, he's got to come in and set a tone, right? He can't just come in and get along with everybody. I'm not saying that he has to disrupt everything, but he's got it. He's got to set a tone when he gets here. That's different than what Brett Brown does. Why don't we go to himself, Keith Pompey, and get a little news about Doc Rivers coming on? Keith, how you doing, man? Hey, how you guys doing? You doing well? Well, apparently, apparently, we're doing better because the Sixers fell into it. <laughs> Isn't that you some crazy stuff? Man? This Isn't that crazy how they fell into it? I mean, you know, you were about to. I was probably going to be on here today, and you guys would have been complaining about Joel Embiid facing the basket, shooting threes as design plays for 90% of the time. Did you know that's what we were going to say? <laughs> Jeff made oh, me, are, like, are we that predictable stand. in our complaints? Jeff made me take a stand last week on trading Joel Embiid because I didn't think the pieces fit with Mike D'Antoni. So we don't have to go down that road of Mike D'Antoni. We do have Doc Rivers. It came about quickly, when, as I was joking with Jeff, when we were on the air this time last week, that wasn't even an option. He was the coach of the Clippers. 
how things change in a week. Can you tell us how this happened and what it means for this organization going forward? You know what happened? If I'm Doc Rivers, I think that I'm going to file a lawsuit for, um, for, for lack of payment. Can you do that? Can you do that, um, you guys? A lawsuit for lack of payment to Steve Bomber. Because <laughs> if Steve Bomber would have waited a week to fire Doc Rivers, um, the job would have been Mike D'Antoni's. That's how they well, fell into it. You know, well, here, like, so here's, okay. hmm? Go ahead. I, I agree with you. And you know, I'm an attorney. We, we could do that. But here's, here's the malpractice. Why uh-huh. Steve Bomber could have traded Doc Rivers to the Sixers and possibly gotten something out of him. Do you think the Sixers would have actually given up a draft pick for Doc Rivers? Um, that's a great question. I mean, that's a great question. Here's a, I mean, you know, that's a great question because you would have probably received a, a draft pick for him because they can't take in any more salaries, you know, and they don't have any draft picks. So maybe, you know what, Steve Bomber is probably saying, dang, dang it, dang it, dang it. But see, now here's the thing. If Bomber was dangling for a little bit, a week, you know how they only do? Bomber's asking for too much. And the Sixers like, hey, you just might as well cut them. You might as well just cut them because I'm not giving you what you want. Right. So he should have tried. He should have given it the old college try. I mean, because I, I mean, otherwise, I think I don't know what you think. I think they would have ended up with D'Antoni. I think that that was where they were going to go if this didn't fall into their lap. You think it was where they were going to go. And and here's the thing, though. Maybe the Clippers felt like we're not. The Sixers are 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 not as naive as we were with Boston. Because you remember, they gave Boston gave up, uh, no, the Clippers gave up a first-round pick to Boston to get Doc Rivers. And and look, he brings a resume with him, NBA title, 943 wins, 11th on the all-time list. He won't apparently have front office responsibilities, just going to focus on the coaching end. How do you think he fits the way this team is currently constructed? I mean, I think he fits a whole lot better than um, than uh, Dan Tony does. I mean, I, I think that you know, right now, it, you know, they're going to have to get some things fixed. I don't believe that when people say that he's not going to have power, like people I talk to who know him, they say, "Oh, they, oh yeah, he's going to get some power. He's going to have a say." You understand? So I think that you know, right now, like when you look at this roster, everyone keeps saying. Oh, my gosh, they're going to go to the championship. We got Doc. We got the coach we need. Well, the pieces still don't fit. So it's one of those things where they're going to be better than the seventh best team in the, in the, in the East. How much better, I don't know, with this current roster. I, I still think that, you know, if you're Doc Rivers, you're going to say to them, like, you know, I love Al Horford. You know, I, I love him to death. He's a great player but I can't have Al Horford and Joel Embiid on the floor together. You know, we're wasting money. You know, you guys may have to go out there and trade him and possibly get me a sniper that we need. Do something to get us something. So I, I think that, you know, that's probably the plan. And yet I think that they're going to play pick-and-roll basketball where you have a designated shooter on the side who's going to help out where they can go back and doing dribble handoffs and stuff like that. That's what I think the plan is going to be, because if you look at this roster, you could bring back Red R back, you could bring back Phil Jackson, 
all these other pieces, when the pieces don't fit, all these other coaches, but when the pieces don't fit, you're not going to win a championship with this roster due to the lack of spacing. Part of the reason that the pieces don't fit is because the pieces don't want to play to the strengths that they should be playing to, or at least trying to play to those strengths and working on them. It, what The two people, obviously, that I'm talking about are the two stars of the team, Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons. What have, what have you heard have been their reactions to it? You know, it's, it's like it was just a day. You know, Ben goes uh, dark right afterwards. You know, Joel had like a, a, a cryptic tweet early on that made you think like he wasn't happy with it. And then I guess after people assumed he wasn't happy with it, he came out and tweeted about how happy he was with the decision. You know, now the thing is, at this point, if I'm Doc Rivers and other people, I could care less how they feel. You know what I mean? Because I think that they are the superstars, but they're not quite on Kevin uh, Garnett. I mean, excuse me, Kevin Durant and Kyrie's level at this particular stage of their career. Right now, they're getting a coach who coached Hall of Famers. You know, a coach who coached a bunch of all stars. So he has he comes from a credibility standpoint. They're going to get coached now. So, you know, it's not like how it was before. And I think, like, we're talking about these strengths. You know, the goal is Doc Rivers is the type of guy. He's not a yeller. He's not a screamer at everyone. You know, certain people, he push them. But he's the type of guy, if you're not in shape, you don't play. If you're not shooting the ball and you're not shooting three-pointers and you're hurting the team that way, you don't play. You understand what I'm saying? So it's one of those things where, you know, he right now, he has five years. He's coming into a situation where we both know, all of us know, all three of us know, that when you get a coach like that, you're not going to take over a job where you don't have any say in certain situations. So with five years, either they're going to fire him tomorrow or they're going to have to pay him for the next, like, the next five years so it's going to be one of those things. If the players don't come to play, those players could be out of here or those players could be on the bench. You mentioned the players coming to play. One of the, the guys who he's gotten to come to play before is Tobias Harris, who had some of his best seasons, played parts of two seasons under Doc out and with the Clippers, averaged 20 points a game, seven rebounds, shot almost 43% from three-point range. Are we going to see a different Tobias Harris in this offense because Doc Rivers knows how to use him? Yep. You know what it is? It's funny. I was talking to someone last night about that whole Tobias situation and, and why did Tobias excel under Doc. And they were like, Doc was hard on Tobias. And that's why I said, you know, you, you, you treat different players differently. And the reason why I'm hard on Tobias is because Tobias has a tendency, you know, to disappear at times, a tendency to, like, you know, be selfless, too selfless. And what Doc would do is Doc would yell at him and scream at him and curse him out when Tobias passed up shots. Like he would call a timeout and then Tobias would walk off the court and he would just get in his face. So it got to a point where, you know, Tobias had – he, he it wasn't like just you got the green light. It was like, no, you need to produce. And then Tobias shot 43% from free. Um, he averaged, like you said, 20.9 points. But that was just because Doc was like, I'm going to use you. And here's the one thing, and I'm not saying this about 
um, Tobias. I'm not, I'm not comparing him. But when you look at a, a doc's resume, you know, some people may say, okay, you look at Kevin Garnett, you look at um, Ray Allen, Paul Pierce is, you know, a great guy. But Paul Pierce is going to go into the Hall of Fame. Kevin Garnett is is in the Hall of Fame, Ray Allen. But they came to Doc Rivers late in his career, so he can't really claim them. When Tracy McGrady's career took off was when he went to Orlando under Doc. And what Doc said to him is, remember, Tracy was used to being second fiddle to Vince Carter. And what Doc said to him is, you're going to shoot. You're going to be that guy. Tracy McGrady made his first all-star team his first year in Orlando, and he made it something like six years straight. He His, his top three scoring seasons were in Orlando, and he had back-to-back scoring titles. That's the type of impact Doc has when he gets on players and tell them you have to do this. Again, I'm not saying Tobias Harris is Tracy McGrady. Tobias Harris is not the first option on this team. But when you see the type of success that Tobias Harris has had under Doc, and you see the type of things that Tracy McGrady was able to catapult his career into, then you understand the impact that he has as a coach. All right. So if you take out your your three stars, who will be the person who most benefits from Doc Rivers being the coach? You know what? If you take out the three stars, I mean, that's a great question. Um, You know, when you look at that roster, and I'm just saying someone that I I assume is going to come back because some of the bench players, you know, you don't know what's up with them. You know, I, I would have to say a Josh Richardson type. You know, Josh Richardson is like, you know, he, he the thing about Josh is, you know, he's not one of the stars on the team, but he's always in attack mode. The Sixers don't run any, didn't run, run any plays for him. But at the, you know, when I think of the playoffs, the one of the few people who didn't quit was Josh Richardson. And I think that he's the type of guy that, you know, Doc will depend on. You know, Doc will say, do this, do that. And and I think Josh will get better. You know, I, I think he will. He's kind of like a junkyard, a poor man's junkyard dog. You know, now maybe Matisse, they'll work on Matisse. They'll, they'll work on his shooting. You know, he'll be there. But when you look at the rest of them, like a Alec Burks, uh, you know, uh, Glenn Robinson the third, you know, guys like that, you know, these are guys who we don't even know if they're coming back next year. So it's hard to say what Doc will do with them. But I do think that, um, you know, um, Josh Richardson will benefit from him. Well, Keith, we will have plenty more to talk about as the situation goes forward, uh, as he officially has press conference here. Always appreciate you taking a few minutes to hop on with us. Uh, Stay safe and have yourself a great weekend, man. All right. Thanks for having me, fellas. Jeff, it's it's not surprising to me uh, that – how it shook out. I, I've been texting you all week. They did a coaching search the way that they did a search for players. They got the biggest names and the most headlines. I'm kind of surprised they closed the deal with him. Really am. I really oh. thought it was going to be D'Antoni. I, I just, I didn't want it. I think everybody thought that. I think it was. I mean, it, it, this, it, this was not spec, just sheer speculation. I think that's the way it was going to be. I mean, and, and, you know, this show, 
I'm all excited because it's basketball. It's like lots of basketball. It is a, a full basketball show. Let's get yeah, So now, now we're going from the process, which is on its last, this is probably the last guest with the process to now talking the guy who wrote the book on the cap. And absolutely. Let's bring on Josh Mendelson, author of the cap, how Larry Fleischer and David Stern built the modern NBA. Josh, how you doing today, man? I am good. How are you guys doing? We are wonderful. We're just having all kinds of basketball talk today. You are a labor <laughs> lawyer, uh, lots of experience in sports, entertainment, but you describe yourself as a diehard NBA fan, armchair salary cap nerd, labor lawyer, and NBA season ticket holder. How did you come up with the idea to write a book about the NBA salary cap? Well, I, you know, basically there were, there were well, the, the example I write about in the book, if we're going to get nerdy and we're talking about the process, is when Omar Ashik, when Sam Hinkie's mentor, Daryl uh, Morey, signed Omar Ashik uh, to the Rockets, he had structured the deal in such a way to make it impossible for the Bulls to match. And I was very impressed by this. And, and Bob Ryan went on around the horn and, and basically said that whatever was in Ashik's contract was not really that innovative and that what Moses Malone had signed with the Sixers 30 years earlier was much more interesting. And it kind of went off in my head that I had no idea what he was talking about. And I kind of went to find a book about the history of the business of the NBA. Because in baseball, there's, you know, there's Lords of the Realm. There are tons of books about it. And in basketball, there just, there just wasn't any. And so I started to research it. It's incredibly fascinating. It's incredibly interesting. Um, and the more I, I, I read about, you know, these negotiations and the history of it, it just was absolutely fascinating. So I really just wrote the book because... I was interested in the topic and there wasn't a book on it. So I figured other people might be interested too. So how did, so how did the NBA cap come about? So the idea, so, so in the mid 1970s, right, all of the major sports unions, baseball, the NBA and the NFL basically achieved free agency in some form. Um, The NFL achieved a much weaker form than what existed in baseball and the NBA. And so in the early 1980s, when the NFL was entering into negotiations, the NFLPA said, we have no chance of ever getting free agency. We want a guaranteed percentage of revenue. We want, you know, 55% of gross revenue. You give us that money, and then we're going to distribute that amongst the players. Um, On the other side, in the NBA, they had had tried through several negotiations to force kind of like a straight, like this is how much – players are going to be paid. They had all these different iterations of it in the union because the union was, was quite powerful Then rejected all of it. Um, but the head of the union, Larry Fleischer, very much wanted the players to get a piece of television revenue. He saw television and cable. He saw the future of the NBA to be quite bright. And he wanted to make sure that the players got a percentage of revenue. And so, uh, you know, and, and we can talk about the twists and turns of negotiations because there was a bunch of it. But basically, in the end, um, what they agreed to was the NBA Players Association agreed um, to a, a, a soft limitation on team salary um, in exchange for a guaranteed percentage of revenue, including cable revenue. But then they also had a series of exceptions to allow players to basically allow free agency to continue um, in a meaningful way. Um, the salary cap that existed at that time was, was much more player friendly. There was no luxury tax. There was no uh, rookie wage scale. There was no max salary. So it was a much softer circumstance and more player friendly. But that's basically the framework of the agreement that they reached. Basketball sort of made a different bet than baseball, though, with their approach. Basketball, as you said, they wanted the guaranteed revenues. It seemed like it was driven by a, a mistrust of the owners and just the uncertainty of, of how large those revenues would go from TV. Baseball 
they didn't want the owner. They figured the owners wouldn't be able to stop themselves from signing the players. They wanted the market to rise. And so they didn't have a guarantee of revenue. How did basketball arrive at the model that they did? Why was that so important to Larry Fleischer? Sure. So first of all, that's, that's exactly right, right? Baseball and basketball made two, two different bets. Um, and at different points, different aspects of it have been, have been better or worse. The point, Larry Fleischer's concern was several fold. First of all, in, when they were negotiating, there was a very real concern that several teams would fold. Um, because of the fact that the NBA at that time was the third sport. It was behind baseball, it was behind the NFL. Um, and, and so, and they also had come out of the ABA NBA merger and several teams were on considerably weaker financial footing. Um, there were all kinds of issues in terms of how the owners were accountable to one another. Um, they didn't make as much money from the gate as baseball. They didn't make as much money from TV as the NFL. And one or two owners, uh, acting, foolishly could really you know have a team that that folded and they and there was such tremendous turnover in terms of what they did so Fleischer's view was you know I want to make sure I get the TV revenue that's important because everybody believed that even though there were economic problems in the early 1980s that there was a bright future for the NBA he said but I also want to hedge my bets against some of these you know frankly idiotic owners like Donald Sterling and Ted Stepien, and I want to make sure that there is a high minimum to ensure that they have to spend. Because some of these teams, um, like the Indiana Pacers or, or, or the, the San Diego Clippers at the time, weren't spending at all. Um, so it was, a different, it was certainly a different economic universe, um, and that was why the NBPA made a different bet than baseball did. You, re- you mentioned Donald Sterling and Ted Stepien. I think more, more people nowadays know about Donald Sterling and his gaffes. But you write in the book about Ted Stepien, uh, which I thought was kind of an interesting uh, story. Tell us a little bit about Ted Stepien and what happened with him that led to the Stepien rule. Sure. So Ted Stepien, um, the best way that Ted Stepien was described, and I put it in the book, he was described by a fellow owner as someone who thinks with their mouth open. Um, He was incredibly wealthy. Um, but if you read any assessment of, of Ted Stepien, he was wealthy kind of in spite of himself. He built this business um, that had done very well, and he takes over the Cleveland Cavaliers. And when he buys the Cleveland Cavaliers, he's, uh, you know, he, first of all, he had issues in terms of getting into the NBA because he had made a series of racist and anti-Semitic comments. Um, and when he, you know, when he bought the team, um, he also insisted on taking over the basketball operations. He's basically running the team as, you know, uh, from the basketball side. He had absolutely no experience as a, a uh, in, in basketball. He hired um, a coach who had been out of basketball for four years who got the job because uh, the coach convinced Billy Martin, um, who was the former manager of, of the Yankees, uh, to flatter Ted Stepien. And that was how he became the coach of the team. The general manager of the Cavaliers at that time uh, had no experience in basketball whatsoever and had run the semi-pro softball team that Ted Stepien owned. Well, he to, be, to, to be, be fair, before, before you go on with that, to be fair, Billy Martin flattering an owner is, isn't exactly his M.O. And what, softball team? Yeah, well, <laughs> it's a novel way to become a general manager in the league. I, I, I liked, he also sued the team's radio broadcaster. That was something to me. <laughs> well, I think he, you know, it was his hometown. And, I, and, and so basically he trades away all of his draft picks for years. The joke in NBA circles was that the Cavaliers' next first-round pick was in seventh grade at the time. Uh, you know, he, he traded, he, and then he, he um, vastly inflated, uh, or not inflated, but he increased the salary scale for players through a, a period that, that um, uh, 
through free agency. And then, and then basically the team stunk. No one was going. He suffered intense criticism. The NBA stepped in and said that you can't, you can't make any more trades uh, unless we approve it. And he couldn't take the criticism. He thought he would be hailed as a hero. And so he sued his broadcast partner for $10 million uh, uh, because they were critical of him. And so the, there were very, very real concerns that the team was going to fold. Um, and so the Stepien rule came about because the, the Cavaliers had traded so many draft picks that they had no hope. There was no possibility that they would be able to um, to build a team. And so after, you know, and, and a few weeks after the agreement for the, for the cap was signed, a new owner, Gordon Gunn, came in and took over the Cavaliers. But they passed a rule that said, you know, the Stepien rule in terms of limiting the amount of first-round picks a team could trade so that you could never get yourself in a hole like Ted Stepien did. It was like a movie. It's amazing, and and he's just one of the characters <laughs> in the book that that you really go into, along with Fleischer. You know, people know about David Stern as the commissioner, but he led the negotiations for the NBA and then became commissioner a few months after the salary cap. Can you talk about his role in the process and how he benefited from the structure he put in place before he ever took charge? Sure. So, um, you know, right. So the 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 time that we're looking at in the book is not, you know, it's kind of like Anakin Skywalker prequel of David Stern becoming the commissioner of the NBA. And what's amazing is, and, and, and part of, you know, part of the research for the book was being able to go through some of the, the internal memos that the NBA had. And David Stern is building the business of the NBA in the seventies before he's commissioner. You know, he's focused on, on television. He's focused on cable television. He's striking deals with HBO and with ESPN in the mid-1970s. Before these were real things, in his memos, he refers to ESPN as ESP because they didn't know what to call it, and so they call it ESP. Um, he is, you know, he's worried about, he's looking at international players. He's really building the business that we all understand the NBA to be, and part of that was he wanted to see if he could convince the union to agree to something like this so that they, they wouldn't have owners like Ted Stepien, like Donald Sterling. You know, part of the problem was that, that there was so much turnover that they couldn't really get owners. They were having difficulty selling the franchises. And so they hoped that this, this circumstance that they had um, would create internal revenue sharing, would create, um, and would create a system where they would be able to attract owners. And, and you know, Sterling said, um, I think I wrote this in the book. I might not have, but um, Stern said that at the time there were really two constituencies. He's trying to convince the players to agree to this system that was really novel and very different, and, and it was not clear how it was going to go, right? But he's also trying to convince the owners to work with one another and to share with one another. And that was not the case at the beginning of these negotiations. So it was, it was a, a, an accomplishment on his end in terms of both making a deal with the players but then also convincing the owners to work together, which they had not done historically. Well, One of the interesting things about the the book is talking about the different rules that come about and the way that you know the way that money is is moved around. Where did the Larry Bird rule come from? I mean, a lot of people have heard the Larry Bird rule. They know that that it means you get to sign your own player for more than. But how did it come about? So when Fleischer is negotiating this deal, right? There's something you know he he he's a very very skilled negotiator. He also acted as an agent. He represented a lot of players. He was very, very shrewd and very good at finding loopholes, finding ways, 
you know, within these economic structures he would create, even if they would seem restrictive, he was kind of able to get around it. And so while he's negotiating with, with the NBA over the salary cap or over the potential salary cap, he would frame these questions in such a way that would convince the owners to want to create exceptions, to want to, you know, because the belief is, is that teams want to win and teams want to be able to sign their players. And so at one point in negotiation, he, he frames a number of questions to make it, you know, desirable for the owners to want to agree to it. One of them is, well, what does a team do if, you know, if, if, if we're going to agree to this circumstance that we'll have any limitation on salary at all, what are we going to do if you're the and, – and Larry Bird was about to be a free agent. He said, what are we going to do if, if you have Larry Bird and the Boston Celtics want to retain Larry Bird – you know, how are we going to do this? And he, and, and, you know, the owner's like, well, if I'm, you know, I'm the Celtics, of course I want to keep Larry Bird. And so that was kind of how they agreed on the Larry Bird exception. Um, they convinced, you know, very, very shrewdly framing the issue in such a way so that the owners would want to do it. Um, and he did that with a number of, of exceptions. Um, there was also the Kareem Abdul-Jabbar exception. You know, what do you do if, if we're going to have a, a superstar who's retiring, well, certainly Jerry Buss, the owner of the Lakers, didn't want to be in a circumstance where he couldn't compete because, you know, they, they were locked in because of what happened. So there would be an exception for that. And then the other question is, well, what do you do if you have a, a, a rookie, right? They called it the Ralph Sampson. Ralph Sampson was a super uh, <clears throat> a superstar forward uh, from Virginia who was, I think he was the number one pick of the draft. He ended up getting hurt very young. But it, it was the idea that, that teams would look at these potential areas, which were great for Fleischer in terms of his constituency, because it increased their salaries and gave them opportunities to get around something that would otherwise be quite onerous. The book is The Cap, How Larry Fleischer and David Stern Built the Modern NBA. Josh Mendelson, where can people find it if they want to read it? They can find it anywhere. It's on Amazon, and they can also go to www.thecapbook.com, and that has you know a little more information about the book and where to get it. Thank you so much for the time and for explaining how the cap came to be with us. Fascinating subject that you made kind of interesting with the documents you got. So thanks for the time, man. Thanks a lot. Take care, guys. Jeff, there's so many things in that book, the exceptions, the, 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 the characters I, that the one owner of Cleveland got my attention, of course. Yeah, it's pretty hard to top Donald Sterling, but it looks like Ted Stepien came pretty close. Yeah, and we didn't go into the Moses Malone contract, but that seemed to really spur this, this idea in his head, as he said, in terms of how it was done in a way with so many poison pills that nobody could get him away from the Sixers and the deal that they had. Look, the way that the NBA has evolved um, is, is fascinating, but before you have the NBA, you have to be playing college. Well, not all the time, but most players go to college. So I think it's time for that. We talk a little college basketball too. Yeah. Let's, let's keep the basketball talk rolling. Uh, Coach Phil Martelli. Thank you so much for joining us and giving us a few minutes today. Glad to be with you guys. Uh, this is a fascinating time, and I am here with a Michigan man uh, as a co-host who's very excited to be talking to you, separate from the fact that you're Phil Martelli from Philly, just because you're a Michigan guy, so I'll let him start. So, so Coach, uh, go blue. Um, before we uh, start and talk about coaches versus cancer, which is what, what we really want to talk about with you, we have to know two things. One, did you find a good pizza place in Ann Arbor? They can't hear me. Oh, we got uh, no, we can hear you. No, we I'm got talking you. about the the uh, vendors in in Ann Arbor. I don't want anybody storming <laughs> me. Uh, <laughs> we won't share with them. Don't worry. Don't worry. Uh, well, I 
I found a terrific uh, uh, place. It's a restaurant, though. It's not a it's not a pizza place like we would know in in uh, Philadelphia. And the added attraction in this uh, in this restaurant is they have a waiter who has been in Ann Arbor for 22 or 23 years, and he's known by everybody in the restaurant as Philly. He's from Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Came here for school. He stayed here, and he's fanatical about the four major sports teams in Philadelphia. So uh, I never go in there without getting him as my waiter. And all we ever talk about is Philadelphia sports, and their their pizza is uh, is very good. Without saying the name, uh, you found the right place. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Second big question: Who's the better dresser, you or Jawan Howard? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I have nice stuff now, uh, and the guy that I worked with in Philadelphia ha- has been great to me for a, for a long time. Um, I, I probably Juwan because he's taller, he carries himself more in a, um, in a model. No one has ever confused me with a male model. Believe me. <laughs> well, well I'll, I'll leave Jeff's questions there. We, we did want to bring you on. We've been talking a lot with the coaches from Philly coaches versus cancer. You and Fran Dunphy uh, brought this to Philly 25 years ago. You currently serve on the Coaches versus Cancer Council today. How'd you get involved with this amazing effort that, that's grown to be what it is? Uh, I don't know what year. Uh, it may have been my first year or second year. And I picked up the NCA. used to put out a newspaper. I don't know if it was once a week or once a month. And I was paging through it, and I saw the list of the top 100 schools, 100 programs that had donated monies to Coaches Versus Cancer. At that time, it was uh, through your three-point shooting. And I went through the list, and I went through it a second time, and I thought to myself, there's not one Philadelphia school on this list, yet we have the best college basketball in the whole country, Uh, as was most nights. It was in the off season, and Cran Dunphy and I were were passing in the hallway at the Union League, doing an event. And uh, I said, "Did you see that? We, we have to do something." Now I was always great about we have to do something, and then kind of like dropping a couple seeds, and then all these other people did remarkable work, including and it cannot be overlooked at all. The people that have gone into their pockets over the years—they're the heroes. And I don't mean this in a smart Alec way. It's not the coaches. It's the, it's those those backers, those donors, uh, the people that that participated in golf outings or breakfast or the galas. Um, and then once we got involved, uh, I, I'm very friendly with Jim Beheim at Syracuse, and I saw that he led the country year after year after year in funds raised. And I said, you know what? Uh, we have to put an end to this. So that's when we started and we really became an all-inclusive. So everybody in Philadelphia basketball was involved from the fifth and sixth grade teams to the college teams. Uh, we got involved in basically a full academic year worth of programs. 
and uh, really proud to say the amounts of money raised have been terrific, but I think the quality of life, even if it's for one day or one week, the quality of life that we've been able to impact for uh, cancer patients and their families, their friends, their communities, that's what I'm proudest of. And I'm you know, obviously proud of the of the production that was on television and will be on television again uh, on NBC Sports. Philadelphia alone, uh, since 1996, has raised over $17 million. Um, we've talked to coaches from most of the schools over the last month, and there seems to be something about this city and something about the, the coaching fraternity here that brings out the best. What, what have you noticed about the coaching fraternity and, and, and the city as a whole when it comes to uh, rising most when you need it? Uh, obviously, being a lifelong Philadelphian, uh, I've always believed this, that when, when our back is to the wall, uh, we do look out for each other. And I know that o- over time, we, we've had moments of unrest and uncertainty but you can always count on a Philadelphian when you're back to the wall, when you're painted into that proverbial corner, Philadelphia is going to stretch out a hand. Uh, and I've always believed that in, in every day, in all of our lives, every day, every single time we stretch out our hand, we're attempting to touch a heart. And that's really what, it, what has happened. Uh, go back to Fred DeBona at Independence Blue Cross, the late Fred DeBona. And he said to us, you're not going to do this a nickel at a time. You're really not going to do it a dollar at a time. But you're going to have to go big, and you're going to have to be very engaged with the whole community, corporate Philadelphia, down to your grade schools. And uh, his words proved to be prophetic. We have... uh, it's certainly a badge of honor and the same thing with the coaches. Uh, You know, look, there's no mystery about knocking heads with each other on recruiting, on marketing your program on back when television wasn't as, as uh, abundant as it is today, television. Uh, You really wanted that opportunity for your playground, for your program and for the players um, but when this cause, when it, when it consolidated to say, you know what, this isn't going to be about Temple. It's not going to be about St. Joe's. It's not going to be about Villanova. It's going to be about Philadelphia basketball. Um, every single coach that has come through the, through the doors has done, uh, yeoman's work, but I want to go back. It's the people that wrote the checks that dropped a dollar in a bucket somewhere along the line, bid on an item. They're the true heroes. Well, in addition to the <clears throat> the money raised, it's it's the example you're setting for your student athletes. Uh, you know, you, you look at the volunteer effort that they do at places like Hope Lodge. You helped bring Hope Lodge to Philly about ten years ago. What does it mean to you that, that that effort is there? And and what does it mean to you to see these student athletes get the life experience by volunteering their time yeah. in, in these challenging settings that are outside the basketball court, but deal with the challenges of life? Well, 
I would say that the the players who have gone to Hope Lodge with their coaches or the players that have volunteered their times, the high school players that have volunteered their times with the school initiative program, they've gotten more than they gave. And they gave a lot. You know, they gave some of their time. They gave some of their talents. They gave some of their treasures. And they received, uh, can't really describe the feeling that you have. uh, But when you meet that family, when, when you meet that, that husband and wife who are maybe coming from out of state and they look at you and they say, thank you. It's, it's a life lesson that I hope for every player that has gone through these programs, the high school program, the, 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 uh, growing grade school programs, the college programs for all of those, pro- for all of those programs, for all of those young people, what I hope is that they take it with them. So if you're a senior and you've gone to Hope Lodge, I hope when you're out in the real world that you go back to Hope Lodge, that maybe you take your church group or your community group or your high school team and go back because you, you said it beautifully. It, look, being perfectly honest, Coaching the basketball part, there's a lot of people that can coach the basketball part. But it's our responsibility as coaches to make sure that we touch these young men and young ladies and make them a little bit better because they were in our presence. Coach, one of the things that everybody we've talked to this week that knew you were going to come on the show talks not not just about your coaching, but you as a citizen and, and what you give to you and what you teach these student-athletes we are in an unprecedented time with with student athletes realizing their voice. What is it like mm-hmm. for you as a coach to be able to help them um, discover their voice and to watch what they're doing with their voice in a positive way? Well, I've, I've always felt uh, that uh, coaching to me was really parental and uh the parents out there know that when yes is the appropriate answer, that's what we should tell our young people. When no is the appropriate answer, that is what we should tell our young people. It doesn't mean that I love you less. It just means that at this moment in time, the right decision is either yes or no. And to see so many of these young people, uh, as you said, capturing their voice and using their voice and lifting their voice. One, it takes them off of social media. It takes them off of these machines and, and it, and it acts absolutely positively engages them. They are, they're learning life lessons. They're listening to life lessons and they're sharing life lessons. It, it's, it's a uh, chilling it's chilling, somewhat uh, not disappointing, but it's bothersome that that this is what it took this, whether it's social unrest, the pandemic, uh, you know, all that's going on with 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 uh, government. It took this really chaos to get our young people 
really connected. But the key is, and I've said this repeatedly, there's obviously a major movement in college basketball and college athletics to have all these young people vote. And I think it's spectacular when you see the numbers of young people that have absolutely sworn that they will vote in November. The key to this program and the key to the legacy of this program is do they vote next year? And do they vote locally for commissioners, for judges? Do they educate themselves to be a, uh, an informed voter next year? Um, we're going to be led by the young because every day we're charged with learning and every day we're charged with teaching. And it doesn't matter your age. And right now to see that so many young people teaching is heartwarming. You know, it's clear talking to you. And like Jeff said, when we told people you're coming on, you're, you're still beloved in Philadelphia. Uh, what do you cherish most about your, your time here? Relationships, relationships, relationships and relationships. I, uh, I obviously tre treasure my family that are still in the Philadelphia area. I treasure coming back. And ironically, last year, the pandemic allowed me to be, you know, home for four months when I might have been out recruiting and uh, here and there and only getting home for maybe a summer vacation. Uh, but you know that I treasure the fact that that uh, I could be pumping gas, and the guy at the next pump over will look over and just say, "Hey, Phil, how you doing?" Or the unbelievable number of notes uh, that I got, not just from players and their families, but but high school programs or grade school programs when they'll say. I remember you stopped at our school and you said this, and uh, all I wanted to do was was to be able to touch one person a day, and um, that's what I really value and what I miss. You know, uh, I love Ann Arbor. I love Michigan. It's not Philly, uh, but when I'm done with basketball then I come back to the condo that I'm renting. Um, in Philly, I, was, I never went home. I was always trying to help one person. And if there's one person out there that helps one other person because of an interaction they had with me, then uh, I'll put my head on the pillow this night and feel good. Coach, we can't thank you enough for the time. Where can people give if they want to help your efforts and, and support Coaches versus Cancer? I think if you just go online and you, and you look up Philly Coaches versus Cancer, there's a way. Uh, certainly if they can catch the rebroadcast of the program. But um, you're talking to a, uh, a uh, novice with regard to the computer, even to this day. But I do know that Philly – Coaches versus cancer is on there, and there's certainly ways. And 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 please, anybody out there that's pausing even for a second and saying, "Well, this is what," I, and I get it. It's hard times for a lot of people, but you know what? The magic dollar, the dollar that's going to crush cancer, is in Philadelphia. 
and their dollar is every bit as important and valued and appreciated as the big six-figure checks that have been written by corporations in Philadelphia. We're going to do this. We're going to do this a dollar at a time because Philadelphia is special, and we will one day crush cancer. Coach, we'll continue to put the information out on our accounts and try to keep raising awareness. We thank you so much for your time and everything that you've been doing and uh, continued health and safety. Thank you. I really appreciate it. And, you know, I, I had to get used to it, but after a year I can be able to say this proudly, go blue. All right. You just made <laughs> yesterday. I'm not going to hear the end of that for like the whole weekend. <laughs> you realize that. Thanks so much, Coach. Take care of yourself. Thank you. Be safe, fellas. Jeff, the legacy that these coaches leave in this city uh, speaks to their integrity. You can hear how much he loves this city and the people here. His passion. Yeah. Uh, and people who aren't from here don't really get it. I mean, I'm I'm a North Jersey kid and transplanted down here. I think I get it after three decades. But it, it, it people don't understand how much this city gives and and how much the the people in the city, the athletes in the city, the coaches, everybody in the city gives and is interested in, in helping each other out, even in times like this when you may not be able to give as much. Um, and for people that, that didn't get a chance to see the broadcast, you can see the broadcast and you can go on to their website, which is www.phillycvc.org. Just just think about it. I mean, these these coaches are doing yeoman's work. Their players are doing yeoman's work. If you can go help out at Philly, you know, at Hope Lodge, do it. You know, find really, a way to make a difference. I'm really glad that we, we've we done this series. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's You know, we know what we have in this city, and it, it's great to hear them talk, but it's great to hear other people get an opportunity to, to understand what these teams are doing. It's, it's more than just dribbling a ball on a court. And that comes through when you're talking to these coaches who teach young people how to be adults and enter life. Isn't, uh, you know, look, we all want our teams to win. I, I look, I went to Michigan at the time they won their last national championship. I would love to spend all hour talking to coach Martelli about the, who they're recruiting and who's coming in and how great their season is. But, but that's not really what college sports is about. And that's what gets lost in all of this because of college football, mainly because so much money comes into it is that, that for most of their kids going to college and as somebody who has a freshman in college, I could already hear the difference in my own kid. And, and you see what these coaches do when, when they're molding young lives and helping them find their voice. And that's what you're supposed to learn in college, regardless of what you do. But that's, they are student athletes, students first, athletes second. And look, that, that fits with what our show has always been about, it's about the impact that sports can have on society and community and the lessons learned. And, you know, there are no better examples than the interviews we've had over the last few weeks with these coaches talking about what they've done to raise awareness and raise funds and get their teams involved. And, and you heard the coach say it's not about Drexel or Penn or LaSalle or, or Villanova or Temple. It's about Philly for them. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> that's, that's well, except when it comes to game day and it comes well, to recruiting. And, th- and that's part of it. It's finding a balance. That's you know, good. it's Yeah. You know, find the time to to do what's right together and then find the time to do your own thing. All right, Jeff, we've had so much time interviewing people that I basically got six minutes to 
to throw things at you. Uh, where do you want to go? There's... Oh, I know where you want to go. You want to go to the tie. So go ahead. Go to the tie. No, I actually don't want to go to the tie. You I don't. Check. I Look at to, you. I will go to the tie in a second. But on yeah. air, I'd like to check the score of the Marlins game and see how Sixto is pitching. Oh, do, does, the, does the rest of the world have to suffer from the fact that that you need to be obsessed with the Sixto Sanchez trade. Sixto Sanchez, five innings pitched, four hits allowed, two yeah. walks, six strikeouts in his first playoff appearance as the Phillies sit home. Horrible. Still haven't fired Matt Klintak, and it's unlikely that I see JT Real Muto in pinstripes, and Didi will probably go with him. Oh, so I think you're gonna see, I think you're gonna see Real Muto in pinstripes. They're just gonna be those Mets ugly pinstripes. Yeah. I'm telling you, I think and I'm going to lose my mind even more because I'm watching Sixto do what he was supposed to do for the Phillies for the whole reason they made the stupid trade. Well, I mean, look, I, I still have concerns about whether Sixto arm doesn't fall off at some point in the next year or two. So there's a risk with with a guy that small throwing that hard. Um, and so I worry about that, but I, I worry more now about not having the best catcher in baseball. And just letting him walk. And on top of that, also letting D.D. Gregorius walk. So people should know that was a one-year deal, I believe. And so after the season's over, you could lose both of those guys. And if you take them out of the lineup, Bryce Harper is going to be looking around saying, who's going to protect me? Alec Bone? Reese Hoskins has surgery for Tommy John. Look, well, that's what that's why I'm saying. I think, Al, look, Alec Bone has had, had a fantastic first year, and I would argue he's the rookie of the year in the National League. But but that's not what you need around Bryce Harper. You need some veteran presence, and there are no they do not have a lot of depth at catcher in the minors, which was obvious when Real Moto got hurt. Now I'm going to go to the tie, Jeff. <laughs> okay. Now, okay. Now, so, now that you've been dragged down far enough, go ahead. So, do you want the good news or the bad news? There's no good news in a tie. The good what? news is... I, I want to hear the good news because there is none, but let's see what you make of the good news. The Eagles are only a half game out of first place in the NFC East. Yeah, but that's going to change. As much as as much as much we How all hate the Cowboys, the, the Cowboys have five easy games coming up. And the Eagles do not. This was supposed to be the easy part of their schedule. Now they're going into San Francisco and other top teams. Now, look, San Francisco's got some injuries. Nick Mullen's going to be the quarterback. I don't know if you weren't watching last night, but of course I wasn't. It's Thursday night football. They put up a graphic for the quarterbacks to watch this weekend and for the San Francisco Philadelphia matchup. They put right. up Nick Mullins instead of Carson Wentz. <laughs> That's how far he's fallen in people's eyes in the last week. And I told my friend who's a, a Bengals fan uh, during the week leading up to the game, I said, you watch if they lose or don't win this game. If they don't win this game, you will see the the calls for Carson Wentz to be benched. And you saw that on Monday morning. I'm glad we were not on the air for that, Jeff. I think the biggest call should be for Jason Peters to return the extra money. He got to go to the other side of the line and play as horribly as he plays. I will allow you to ask him to give that money back. No, no, I, I already designated. You get to ask him that question. That's very tough of you to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, look, Carson Wentz continues to struggle, and I don't know. Uh, I still think he's at his base a good quarterback, but he hasn't been the same quarterback since his injury and Frank Reich left. Okay, is, I, he, a, I, is he a franchise quarterback? I think he has the potential to be a franchise quarterback, mm, but I don't no, think he doesn't. He, th- I th- he doesn't. No, here's the thing. My understanding is the relationship with him and Frank Reich was, you know, adversarial at times. Reich pushed him to do things. You know, the way that Doc Rivers, Keith was talking about, pushed other people to do things. I don't think you have that with Press Taylor in the room right now. 
And well, obviously, I, obviously you don't. And, and if if you saw this week, uh, Nick Foles was singing the praises of Frank Reich too, and said that Frank Reich got him and and made him the quarterback. He changed him as a quarterback. And I don't think Carson Wentz likes to be pushed. No, I don't either. But he was clearly a better quarterback when he was being pushed because he falls back on lazy habits. Yeah, or that lead to the turnovers that they have. And now, if you look at it. They basically out potentially one healthy receiver going into this week. Miles Sanders says he's healthy. Dallas Goddard's now out with a fractured ankle. Yeah, uh, but you know what? I, we, he had enough weapons. This is not a situation where Carson Wentz can say that I don't have enough weapons because all you need to look, is he a great quarterback? Great quarterbacks in the NFL are guys who push everybody else. I have never heard of Carson Wentz being the guy in the locker room and the guy on the field who's pushing other people and that they're respecting him and following I didn't expect him to be Aaron Rodgers, but Aaron Rodgers is is in this in a similar situation with he didn't have any receivers this year. Look what he's doing. That's a guy who pushes. I just don't see Carson Wentz as that kind of leader. And as a quarterback, you have to have that intangible. Lots of injuries heading into this weekend's game. Only a minute left. I did want to talk to you. The Titans have closed their facilities after multiple COVID tests. Seven positives right now. That game's been rescheduled to week seven, I believe. Mm-hmm. Their game against the Ravens moving to week eight. Um, lots of news in the NFL. Lots of injuries keep going on, Jeff. <laughs> lots of them. I, I don't know. Well, it- lot, lots of them, especially if you go up to MetLife Stadium. More last night. No, but nobody's going to want to play there. It, it's going to be a real problem with the union. The union's going to start pushing, and I don't understand how a stadium of that magnitude has this many problems with turf. Why don't they have grass? I don't know. I, I guess because they cause happens, it's northern, but you you can grow grass in the north now. It, this is not an issue. That uh, as I don't know why anybody has artificial turf anymore. Jeff's comments on growing grass will be our last words for this week. Thanks so much for joining. That can be so interpreted wrong. (laughs) Make sure to join us next Friday night to help you start your weekend in style. Have a great one, and we'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye. Get inside the world of medicine Saturday mornings.